Amen. Y'all can have a seat and go ahead and turn to Job chapter 2. My name's Kate, and I'm going to be reading our passage for tonight. Um, again, it's Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So I'm going to go ahead and read while y'all are turning there. Satan attacks Job's health. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. It's good to see this summer crowd. We, uh, we got this July 4th weekend coming up. I have my American flag socks on. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if you know, but the, who's running the peach tree? Anybody run the peach tree? Yeah, there you go. All right, all seven of you, it's going to be awesome. Uh, you'll have to meet up, do a big meetup. But right next door is the Atlanta Track Club. So if you've seen the last couple of weeks, like the big U-Haul trucks that they have, that's all your T-shirts. I went ahead and got mine. Just kidding. I mean, I stole it. Anyway, okay, all right, let's carry on. Job chapter 2, we are... Uh, We've been going through books this year. We went through Exodus, and then we went through the Revelation, and now we're in Job. And Job is such a fascinating book. Uh, I think the, the question that the first two chapters paint is, is, is God's glory greater than my comfort? Is God getting glory greater than your comfort I think so often in, uh, in Christian songs, in a lot of sermons, in devotionals, it's read with a very me-centric, it's sang with a very me-centric, it's written with a very me-centric view that God is up in heaven trying to figure out how to make my wish list come true. And the book of Job really flips that on its head. God is not up in heaven trying to figure out how to make my wish list come true. And there are times that for God to be God, it is good and right for us to be put in a really bad spot. And that's where we have to wrestle with this idea that is God's glory greater than my comfort? And when we wrestle with that idea, we have to flip it around and we have to say, okay, so is God greater than me? Is my is my service to God more important than what I receive from God? And that's what we keep wrestling with in this book. And so in chapter 2, you get a little bit more of the same as we saw in chapter 1. And so just to, 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 hash, to rehash a little bit of chapter 1, we saw at the end of chapter 1, we made this parallel that Jesus is actually the greater Job. 
Jesus is definitely the greater Job. He's the innocent, the blameless, the perfectly loving son of God who, was, who suffered, who crucified, he was buried, he was dead. He also raised from the dead. He was raised, to the dead, raised from the dead to life that we might know him and dwell with him. He's the foreshadowing. Job is the foreshadowing of the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about. So the reason we say that Job, that Jesus is the better Job is because if you have a right theology, you will understand that God does not live by the retribution principle. We talked about that a bunch last week. The retribution principle, we did this talk back, I think it's out on the, on the podcast now, but the idea is, um, okay, let's say I wanted to get married. If I don't look at women on the internet like I shouldn't, if I treat women properly like I should, if I treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters, and, and I do all these things that God calls me to do, then I should get a wife. That's how a lot of Christians decide how their morality should be. It's, okay, I know these are some biblical principles, some good things that I should do, so I'm going to do those so that I'll get what I think I should get. That's the retribution principle. And the problem is that's not a biblical idea. It's just a type of moralism. But it has crept into many sermons. It's crept into many devotions. It's crept into many people's reading of the scriptures. If I do A, B, and C, then God will answer with this one, two, and three. The problem in that theology, as we saw last week, is there is no room for an innocent person to suffer. The book of Job shows us a very righteous man, in a lot of ways innocent, and he is suffering. And yet he did all the right things leading up to his suffering. And the reason Jesus is the better Job is because no one suffered like Jesus and no one was more innocent than Jesus. And so what we're going to look at this week is we're going to see Job continue to suffer and we're going we're to ask the question, why does he continue to suffer? What, what's Satan's motive in this torment that he puts on Job? Uh, and does this thing still happen today? Could you or I still go through the kind of thing that Job went through? Or after the cross, did Jesus do away with that? Like, is this like history we're reading? Or is this something that we read currently that can still happen? Could there be some Job's among us? And then lastly, we're going to see how does Jesus help us in this whole process, this side of the cross. And this is very important for you to know. When you read your Bible, when you read your Old Testament, I believe every word of the Bible is weighty. Every word matters. Jesus said that if you, if you teach that some of the words don't hold weight anymore, you'll be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. There's a reason for everything in the Bible, and it's all breathed out by God. It is all important. But some things do change when we get to the cross. Some things come in full circle. Some things come in full bloom. Some things do change when we get to the cross. And so the question we'll look at tonight is, so since we're on this side of the cross, does it matter when it comes to being innocent and suffering like Job? I was reading um, a, a commentary. There's a guy, Christopher Ash. I talked about him last week. He's written extensively on the book of Job. And he says 
that the book of Job is a scary book. We had a little, a little meeting before this at about 6 o'clock. A few of us were outside, and we were talking. We were going over some scripture memory and just saying, hey, has, has that come back up to my, in your mind? Um, you know, what, what, when has it come up? What does that look like? And, uh, and one of the ladies was saying, um, you know, it reminds me of a time in the past. When I think about this passage from John 15 that we had been memorizing, I don't know if any of you have, like, these scary moments of God in your past, did you ever have a bad season when maybe God made you have a breakup or you lost a job or somebody died and you were like reading a certain book of the Bible or you were going to a certain church or there was a certain song you were singing, but something that you're like, I'm just a little bit scared that God's going to show back up in that way if I get too close to that thing again. I don't know if you've ever had those moments. Um, Heather, my, my sweet wife, I'm not sure where she is. She's here somewhere. Oh, front row. That's right. It's great to see you, sweetheart. Um, what a good student. Um, but Heather, several years ago, was going through um, infertility. And I say she was. We, you both go through it if you're a couple. You go through things together. But there's some things that a woman can, can go through that her husband, no matter how much he wants to, there's still a disconnect and it's like this misery because you're in the same room, but you can't comfort like you need to. We're actually going to see that as, we, as Job's friends enter. And then all these chapters where Job and his friends are together. And they're together, but there's this big disconnect. And there were some, some Bible verses that Heather came across during that time. That for a while, when she would hear that Bible verse, it was really raw. And it was like... Yes, God loved her, but this is like the scary side of God. And it, it took a minute for her heart to, to warm back up and for her guard to, to be let down and to say, I trust you. And so Job, in the same way, is a scary book. It's not like a horror movie that we watch. Um, this is like, this is church, you have to be honest. Anybody like scary movies? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Heather and I, we also like scary movies. So some of you are like, I will never watch a scary movie. Heather will turn off all the lights in the house, and she's like, no, you have to sit right there, and you can't cover your face. You have to watch it and endure. Um, <clears throat> and so, like, we'll watch these scary movies. But you know what? It's just like entertainment. It's just kind of fun. Like, how many times can the guy with the knife come out, and how many times will they go into the place where they know the guy with the knife is? Like, you know, like, it's just it's kind of entertainment. It's not going to happen to me. But Job is a scary book because it could happen to you. And yet God did not hide it from us. What we're going to see is a big mystery unfold. I want to just draw your attention to one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 25.1. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. And so for these next few weeks... I invite you to join me on this journey of being royalty where we do our very best to search out some of the big questions that God has buried and hidden between the lines of the book of Job. God has hidden some great treasures in this book, and I want us to be able to draw them out. Another verse that we're going to come to multiple times is James 5.11. If you're taking notes, you should just have this one ready to go with the book of Job because it says, 
Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We want to look, as we dig into this second chapter, we want to look and say, okay, Lord, how do I, at the end of the day, say, I've held fast to my integrity and I have not sinned against you with my lips, even when you have done something unfair to me. I want you to know, as we start, and normally I don't do nearly this long of an introduction. Normally we just read and go, but I think this is very, very important. I think our greatest enemy when it comes to having the faith and endurance of Job is not your fault, but most everyone in this room has it in them. I think your greatest enemy in getting to the place where you can say, God's glory is more important than my comfort, is how your mom and dad, your teachers in school, the inventions that were made that you enjoy, have all fed into this one venomous strain that runs through most everyone who is in the millennial, Gen Z, even some of the Gen X world. It's the idea of selfishness. You've been trained to walk about this earth. The way you've been trained to walk about this earth can be the greatest tool the devil has to leverage against you. All the value placed on how something makes me feel, to swipe right, entertainment culture, making decisions based on what's best for me, my mental health, my well-being, it's not all bad, but it's, but it, I'm sorry, it's not all bad, but it can become quickly all about me. Satan wants Job to see life as all about himself, and you have been programmed to live in a pre-Copernicus world. The sun and all the planets revolve around you. You are the center. But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about rights. It's about God and his glory and his supremacy, and that's it, and that's all. You remember Copernicus, right? He was the guy that went out one day and doing some measurements, he realized, wait a minute, I don't think that this whole thing revolves around us. I think we actually revolve around the sun. Do you know who told him he was wrong? The Roman Catholic Church. They said, no, we're the center of it all. And we even think the Bible teaches that. Many sermons have taught you that you are the center of it all and that God exists to take care of you. The book of Job flips that around and says he is the center of it all. And sometimes for the world to understand that he is center, we must suffer. And at the end of the day, will we still say, All glory be to God. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Job 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job chapter 2 starts off a lot like verse 12 does, or verse 13 does in chapter 1. In the book of Job, we're transported from earth to heaven, and so we're transported back to heaven. And what happens? We see that God is in control. God summons the sons of God. These are all the angels. Some are good, some are bad. The Satan is the proper way to say this. We can't prove that this is the same one in the New Testament. This is the Satan. It just doesn't show up that way in your Bible. It shows up as Satan. But nonetheless, this angel, this demon kind of person is summoned before God. That should tell you, just like we saw last week, this is God's Satan, G-O-D apostrophe S. He owns him. The Satan comes in and he says, where have you been? He says, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And here we go again. God's going to throw Job out there and say, what about Job again? If you and I were in God's position, we would not throw Job out there again. He lost everything, and he still did not deny God. He lost his family. He lost his livelihood. He went from the highest of highs to the very lowest of lows. He went from the richest man to the poorest man. He went through all of it, all in a day, and yet he did not curse God. But you and I are not God. And so we don't, get to, we don't get to pick. And we're looking for justice, and Job is looking for justice in this book, and justice is nowhere to be seen. And so I wonder if Job is starting to, to question the wisdom of God. Because when you don't see the justice of God, you ask why. And when you ask why, what you're asking is, what's the point? And when you ask what the point is, you're asking, where's the wisdom in this? And it is okay for you to ask that question. It's okay for me to ask that question. But Job is, is not privy to any of this. He does not know this is happening. Scholars say that this is why they believe that a prophet wrote this book, a prophet that was given divine revelation between heaven and earth. They were, they were able to know because God told them what was happening. Job knows none of this is happening. Job is burying his kids. He's burning the dead carcasses of his livestock. He's trying to figure out, how do, I, how do I make it? How do I even carry on? We were at my mother and father-in-law's house last night, and we were talking about Job. We're going to get to his wife in a minute. We were talking about her, too. Um, what a character. And so, but I won't make any jokes like that, because last week I almost got myself in huge trouble. Um, and so, but we were talking about, and my mother-in-law got real, real serious during dinner, and she said, 
I can't imagine there would be anything harder in life than if you lost your kids. And then she just like, I thought she was like going to like keep eating and she stopped and she kind of like pulled away from the table and she just kind of went off into her own little, little hemisphere there for just a minute and she was like, I mean, to lose your kids. How, how could you ever trust God again? And she just, she never could complete the thought. She couldn't add any more to it because she had put herself in that spot of how devastating it would be. So that's what Job is doing. He's mourning the loss of his kids and his business and all the things. And he doesn't know that God is dangling him in front of the Satan. And so we're, and the beauty of this book is it's not hidden from us. And so he says, the Lord says to him, hey, you've been thinking about Satan? Have you, or Satan, have you thought about Job? Have you considered him? Now, when we read it that way, it does look like he's dangling him in front of him. But the reality is Satan's already been thinking, I need to get back at Job again. He didn't curse God. And so God's not necessarily as much dangling him in front of him as he is saying, I know you're thinking about Job again. And Satan's going, yeah, I'm thinking about Job. He didn't curse you. Give me another chance. I'll get him to curse you. So Satan says to him, yeah, 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 you, you let me hurt him, but you didn't let me hurt him. You let me hurt all this stuff around. Let me hurt him, and he will curse you. And right before that, God says, you know, he still holds fast to his integrity, Satan, although you tried to make him hate me. Have you ever thought about that, that something by God, that's allowed by God from the enemy that has come in your life is just to see, will you hate God because of this? And the real question there is, did you love God because of what you gave you, because of what he gave you, or did you love God because he's God? And that's the heartbeat of this whole book. Do you love God because of what he gives you, or do you love God because he's God? Is he good enough as God without giving you the stuff? That's the big question here. And Satan is saying, let me, let me afflict him and he'll be done with you. And so in what seems like an emotionless transaction, God says, okay, just don't kill him. And Satan goes and he strikes him with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And I think we have to ask, there's... Two questions here. Why did, why did the Satan torment Job, and what is the Satan's motive? They're both in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, which is rhetorical, of course he has, he's been considering him, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited him, me against him to destroy him without reason. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to get his, his the reason he wants to torment him is so that he will curse God, so that Job will curse God. When curse God means to deny God, to walk away from him. But what's his motive? This is really important. We're going to see why this is important. Satan's goal in all of this is bigger than just Job cursing God. 
Do you see in, in the verse here, in verse 3, to destroy him without reason. Satan has not changed. John 10.10 10. John 10.10 says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Do you realize he hates you so much that he actually physically, literally wants to end your life? I don't know if you've, if you've, um, if any of you have come out of any type of sexual addiction. A lot of times what you'll do in that process of coming out of sexual addiction is you'll do a little bit of homework on people who were uh, maybe in the industry for a while. Uh, Maybe they were in uh, uh, some sort of sex trade or they were in uh, pornography. They were in something. And you'll see when when you start to research those folks that have come out, especially those who have come out and have become believers, how much suicide they experienced in people around them. The goal of Satan is to get you so wrapped up in you, to get you so distracted from God that you find the more I feed myself, the more I hate myself. And the goal is to literally destroy you. This is not figurative. He'd rather you not exist anymore. He's a big fan of taking people out. So we see, yes, the Satan wants Job to curse God, but he also wants to kill Job. So Job, the pressure's on. Will he say that the glory of God is still greater than his comfort? When we get to verse 8, it says, He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Verse 9, and then his wife, we finally see her. She's not named and she's easy to make jokes about because she has one line and she shows up at like a really inopportune time. But what we're actually going to see is something fascinating here. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job, by the way, super smart husband. Fellows, you should definitely listen to this. His wife was clearly wrong. She said the wrong thing. He did not say you're a foolish woman. Job is a very smart man. He said, you're speaking like the foolish women. You fellows should just note, you should underline, you should be like, do not, do not make the mistake. Job, what a guy. He does say to her though, why would he say, every, every word of the Bible has meaning. Why would he say, you're speaking like the foolish women? What would a foolish woman be? It wouldn't be like a, I mean, biblically foolish, the idea of biblical fool. It wouldn't be like, oh, you're just speaking like silly or you're speaking like vain or you're speaking like, uh, like whatever the women of the day would have been that we would call, you know, frivolous. The word actually has much more weight to it. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. 
Job is saying to his wife, sweetheart, you've got to hold to your faith too. That's how the foolish people talk like there's no God. Honey, it's just the two of us, and I know I'm half the man I used to be. I am a mess, but you've got to hold to your faith too. And I think this woman who had gone through so much loss was at an incredible low. I don't fault her for saying what she said to Job. But if she was the one that Satan was considering, Satan would have won the bet with God. And by the way, what was it that Satan hoped that Job would do? Curse God and be destroyed. His wife, probably without even knowing it, literally became the voice of Satan to him. She said the same thing Satan said he hoped would happen to Job. The same thing that, God, that Satan said to God, this is what I hope would happen to Job, she said to Job's face. She became the voice of Satan to her husband. She said, curse God and die. It's exactly what Satan wanted Job to do. Does that remind you of another story in the New Testament? In, Lu in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has this incredible moment with the disciples where Peter even proclaims at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. In the story immediately after that, it says that from that moment on, Jesus began to tell his disciples many things and that he must be given up to death. And Peter interrupts and Peter says to him, Lord, may that never happen to you. And do you know what Jesus turns and says to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not speaking the things of God. You are speaking the things of man. I want to encourage you here. In James 1, 19 and 20, it says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. When you are apt to give a response on God's behalf, may you guard those lips and may you not become the voice of Satan because it is super easy to get in the flesh and be a good, caring, loving person and say the very thing that Satan would say had he been there beside you. This is a major warning for us. Some of your parents, as you have tried to make a godly decision as you move to a big city and you're taking on that big boy, that big girl job and you're like making it, you know, you go to like, you're buying the car and you're doing the thing and you're like finding the roommates and all this stuff. You've had parents or grandparents or nephews, nieces, cousins. You've had people that are close to you that have known you a long time as you maybe even try to make some big decision to follow the Lord that may very well have stopped you from following through because you sought their advice. And in that moment, they may very well have had the things of man on their mind and not the things of God. Job's wife has the things of man on her mind. Peter had the things of man on his mind. And in both of those instances, they spoke the words of Satan over the people that they cared about most. In Proverbs, we're told that the power of death and life are in the tongue, Proverbs 18, 21. 
May we guard our lips as we give advice. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, soaked in this word, and have the things of God in our mind and not the things of man. Because those are so often so different than what we might would say on our own. The glory of God is more important than Job's comfort, and it's more important than our comfort. And we hope that at some point in Job's life, the wisdom of God is going to show up. I want you to go back to verse 8 real quick. It says in verse 8, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I call this the Wilson moment in the book. You remember Wilson? The volleyball? Sometimes it's possible to get so low, only a volleyball or a piece of broken pottery can understand where you're coming from. I just want you to know, if you get in that spot, you're, you're not far. Now, maybe months, it may be years, I'm not sure how long, but like in the grand scheme of things, you're not far from God showing up if you hang on to that faith. And that is not like some like name it, claim it, like prosperity theology gospel. It just seems like all the folks who really go through it and really hang on to their faith, when they get to that Wilson moment where they're like, I have nothing but this piece of pottery and I've named it, and it's like my friend, and I'm just hoping God will show up. Those are the people that when the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to see whose hearts are fully devoted to him that he might support them, that's the people that he sees. And it's not by chance that it says that he sat on a pile of ashes. Job is sitting on the burn pile for the town, the landfill. There's one outside of Jerusalem, and it's called Gehenna. In English, we call it hell. Job finds himself in verse 8 in hell on earth. And why? This is the kicker of the whole book. Why? Because he held fast to his faith. Are you willing to sit on the ash pile with an inanimate object as your last friend? Because the glory of God is more important than your comfort? Spoiler alert, at the end of the book, it is not a messenger, it's not like a letter, it's not some other thing. It is God himself that is going to show up and meet Job. Job doesn't know it now, but he's going to be real glad in a few chapters that he stayed on that pile. And he held that piece of pottery. And he held his integrity. Even when everything felt all alone and desolate. Starting next week, we're going to see how his three friends show up. They're, they're not just three friends, they're three wise friends, and, and they're going to have a lot to say. And, and the unfortunate thing is they're going to say some good, but they're going to say some bad. But the bottom line is they're never going to be able to help Job 
be restored. Job's hope is bigger than his friend's ability to restore him. And so we have to ask the question, please tell me that there's hope this side of the cross. Like something like this can't happen. It would at least be different. Tell me there's something. And so I just want to give you briefly just a little bit of theology of where does Jesus come in to help us in these moments. In John chapter 17, Jesus He's the greater Abraham. Remember when Abraham prayed over Sodom and Gomorrah and interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah to be spared? Jesus prays and intercedes over you and over me to be spared from the enemy. Job did not have that happening. On this side of the cross, we have the Messiah himself, the resurrected Messiah, standing before the Father asking, please don't let Katie go through that. Please don't let Kate go through that. Please, and so on and so on and so on. He is is interceding on our behalf that we don't have to have this Job moment. But still, there are times, and we see it in Luke chapter 22. There are times when Jesus may say to us, Like he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Luke 22, 21 through 23. There are times that Jesus is going to have to say, but it's going to happen. And it is better for my glory and the glory of God the Father that you go through this. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 9 through 15, the Lord's Prayer. He said, every day, every time you pray this, I want you to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus has given us great insight that, yes, these things happen still. But one, he's interceding on our behalf. And two, we ought to pray, Lord, don't let me have a Job moment. Protect me from Satan. Not because I love you because you just give me things, but because, Lord, I don't know if my faith would hold. And it's okay to say that. There's an old hymn. I stand amazed in the presence of God. And at the, one, of the, one of the lines in that hymn says, he bore our burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. One other thing that we have that Job didn't have. We have the great high priest when we go through those times or those seasons where our faith is tested and we're torn almost from limb to limb. Can we hang on any longer? Is God ever going to show up? We have a Savior who knows what it's like to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered and died alone. And in that, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You and I will never sit on the pile of ashes with the piece of pottery all alone as Job. 
And that is a beautiful promise that we have with our Savior. When Heather was wrestling with that infertility and I was literally five feet away sitting there and we're in the same room and it's hour after hour and year after year of going through this, no matter how much I tried to get close to her, I could never be as close to her in her loneliness and pain as the Messiah was because he never left her side and understood everything she was going through. We have so many benefits that Job didn't have. And yet Job didn't even have a Bible. You realize that? Didn't have a synagogue that he went to. I mean, this man's alone and he still holds fast his integrity. So friends, you and I, with the grace of God, we can go one more day and be faithful. We can go one more minute and be faithful and turn it into an hour and turn it into 12 hours and turn it into 24 hours. We can do that with the grace of God because we have a Messiah, if we're in him, who is never going to leave us or forsake us, who will walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus knows your suffering. He knows your loneliness, and he knows that God has allowed it to come to you. Is he worthy of your worship? When he removes your comfort. I want to read the doxology from Romans 11, 33 to 36 as we close tonight. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. May you and I, when we don't see his justice, when we don't see his hand, may we hold fast that he is wise and he does have a plan and his worship is more important than my comfort. And may we thank God every minute that we'll never sit on a pile of ashes alone as Job was alone because we have a Messiah who sits with us. Let me pray for us. Father, would you move in our hearts and give us a heart that loves you no matter what you do for us. Lord, give us a heart that's more about you than about us. Father, may we worship you with or without our comfort because you are worthy to be worshiped. Only you can make our hearts strong like that. Meet us now as we sing to you, please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.